Well, we're in Acts chapter 4. And it's really a continuation of what was happening in chapter 3. We saw the last two weeks. Um, Peter and uh, John, they heal, uh, heal, heal the guy that was born lame. Uh, a lot of excitement, a lot of commotion. Uh, it, it, it brings about an opportunity last week at the temple. They're at the temple outside the area, temple area preaching, preaching Jesus. People are getting saved. It's amazing. Trouble's coming, though. It's, it's about to start now in chapter 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the guard of the temple and the Sadducees came up to them. So they've been preaching. A crowd's going on, and people are notified. Now, the responsibility of the temple did not fall into the hands of the Pharisees. We, we always think, you know, we tend to think the Pharisees, you know, they were the enemies of Jesus. And, and to a large extent, that's true. Uh, there were others also. But the but Pharisees didn't wield the power. The Sadducees did. And, and the, that which is connected to the temple. The heart and soul of Jewish worship was the temple because that was the sacrifices. The priests... You know, they, they, they were powerful people. They could withhold so many things of the sacrifices. They could make your life miserable. The Sadducees were wealthy. Um, they aristocracy. You know, they had power. They, they were the ones. You know, the, the Pharisees weren't really the ones that made people's lives hard. Though they did to some degree. But there were so many of them. A lot of them lived among the people. There were some really good Pharisees. There were no good Sadducees. I mean, they were the elitists. They, they're, they're, they didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in all sorts of things. And, and they controlled the temple. And so the Sadducees came. And these were the people, by and large, responsible for the actual death of Jesus. You know, the, and the priests, and we'll see in a minute more about the high priest family, and I'll talk about that. Then the temple guard, like the temple area, had their own police. You know? And so they, they were all part. This, this is the group that you know, poses the biggest threat, really, to any part of the Christian movement in Jerusalem at the time. Uh, early on because of their hatred of Jesus. And so they come up to them and it says they were greatly disturbed. The word disturbing means they were angry at what happened. Why were they angry? Well, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they were doing the whole Jesus thing. They were teaching the people about Jesus and proclaiming. The word proclaiming means to bring forth a message not just about Jesus, but about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Remember, and we'll see it again in a minute, Peter continually preached, Jesus whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Now understand this. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. Now remember last week, Sunday, when I was preaching about resurrection, and I was preaching how Gentiles didn't believe it, but the Jews did, and I said, all the Jews believed in the resurrection, but I did as a side note say, except the Sadducees. So Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. The very idea that they were preaching that Jesus came back to life, was raised, angered them. Now, let's just remember a little bit, you know, Jesus was crucified, and they buried him. And then Caiaphas, who we'll see you know, in his name in a minute, who's the high priest at the time, was concerned that the disciples might steal the body of Jesus. So he arranged for Pilate to seal up the tomb of Jesus so they could not steal it. And if they did do anything, it'd be on pain of death. And on top of that, there was a Roman guard there. It's one of the reasons we know that people say, well, the disciples stole the body of Jesus. I'm like, oh, no, they didn't. They couldn't. Okay, I'm going to break Brian's stuff. This too. I'm really kind of mad at him. I don't know why. 
Oh, yeah, because of the light, Sunday. I don't blame anybody, but about you, there you are. I'm moving stuff. Is that my way? We go through all this time. Anyways, um, he went hunting this week, took like five weeks of vacation to go hunting, killed nothing. I don't know if he's not a very good hunter. I don't know if the animals are smarter than him. That was my bet or what, but I just feel bad. I feel bad you wasted precious time. Um, and so they, they sealed the tomb up and made it so they couldn't steal the body of Jesus. Then when Jesus resurrected, what they said, they said the disciples stole the body of Jesus. But understand this, the, they knew that's not what happened. But part of those people, the Pharisees, if there was a group to say, hey, wait a minute, wait just a minute. I know we hated this Jesus guy. And I know we didn't, we put him to death, but we believe in resurrection. And we did everything we could to make sure they couldn't steal the body of Jesus. And that body's gone. We know they didn't steal it. And then for 40 days, people kept seeing the body of Jesus. And some of those Pharisees probably began to think, hang on a second. Maybe it's true. Now, I say that because we know that Pharisees began to believe in Jesus. Now, Paul at first didn't. We'll see Paul later on. was trying to kill all the Christians. But eventually Paul did when he saw the resurrected Jesus. But some of the Pharisees believed in Jesus and they never saw him. It's kind of weird, I guess, that right now in the early life of the church, the Pharisees aren't a problem to the apostles. Understand that. Later on in a few chapters, well, next chapter, I think, we're going to see them back in front of the, the same some group of people for the second time. And it's the, one of the Pharisees who basically says, let him go. Gamaliel, who taught Paul, who is, the, who is probably the top Pharisee, says, let these guys go. Let's don't mess with them. So I, w- I want you to get a feel for this. I don't think something you see. Once Jesus was resurrected, part of the Pharisaical movement, part of the Pharisees, began to change their understanding of Jesus. You don't see them here, but you see these guys who were upset because they're preaching that Jesus was raised back to life. And so verse 3 says they laid hands on them. That's not the same way as when Pentecostals lay hands on people, okay? It's not that type. If you're Pentecostal, you get that. Because they put him in jail to the next day because it was evening. So it was late at night or late in the afternoon. They weren't going to have anything. And probably we'll put him in jail a little bit and see how they like it. Verse 4. As a side note, but many of those who had heard the message believed. And the number of the men, not just women, not everybody, just the men, came to about 5,000. As a side note, they put him in jail, the Sadducees and the rulers and the priests. But people began believing. At the end of his sermon, a few, few days earlier, it says 3,000 people were saved. And now, they're just counting men that were 5,000, which, you know, probably double that. There's probably 10,000 people. Now, some people find that hard to believe because they say, you know, that uh, Jerusalem wasn't big enough to have that many people, all that. But try to rem- remember a little bit now. Not every, a lot of people had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and to celebrate um, Pentecost Sunday, Pentecost. And so when that day came, Pentecost Sunday came, you know, a lot of people were c- converted to Christ. And then other people probably stayed a while longer. We know that because and we'll see in chapter 7 in a few weeks, there was a great dispersion of people after Stephen was killed. So a lot of people began to leave. But 
People were staying there. So it's, it's, and, and if you took all the surrounding areas, highly, and that's not that many people. In fact, there are some estimates that within a very short period of time, there could have been as many as 30,000 believers at Jerusalem. By the time chapter 7 comes in, they disperse. Here's what it says, though. In the Greek, it says, when it says they heard the message, the word message is the word for word, logon, term logos. It means, they, it says literally, we could have written, they heard the word. They heard the word about Jesus. It's the same Greek term basically John uses in John 1, 1 beginning was the word and was with God. So they heard this message. And everybody, just guys alone, was 5,000. So on the next day, Notice the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. So the rulers and elders and scribes would make up what they would call the Sanhedrin. The rulers and elders, a lot of that would be the Sadducees. The scribes would come from that group connected to the Pharisees. There were some. And so the Sanhedrin was the ruling council for the Jews. These were the people who put Jesus to death. Do not lose sight of this. These are the people who a couple of months earlier killed Jesus. You got that? That's, can you, I'm sure Peter and John are really excited to be in front of these guys. You know, oh, great. We got the guys who killed Jesus, and now we're standing in front of them. But Jesus had also told these guys, one day you will do greater things than I will do. And, and so, you know, there, there was probably excitement. There was probably anticipation. They named some of them. Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly descent. So this little historical thing, it says Annas was the high priest, but we know that Caiaphas was the high priest. Is there a contradiction? No, because... The same Luke who wrote Acts wrote Luke when he said Caiaphas. So, in about 6 AD, a guy named Annas, who was a powerful, rich, aristocracy kind of guy, became the high priest. The Romans appointed and unappointed the high priest, by the way. They, they were, it wasn't as spiritual as you like. It was a purely political thing. He was taken out in about 15 AD. After him, he would have five sons one son-in-law, Caiaphas, and one grandson serve as high priest. Seven of his family, counting him eight. They would dominate the high priesthood until 66 AD when the Roman war started and they just got those guys out and killed them. So, kind of like how you know, you know, when someone served as president, they're always considered the president. I mean, you always return to them as president or even former, but you always show respect. So, you know, right now we have... You know, we have President Clinton, President Bush, you know, President Obama, President Trump. They would all be referred to as president. If you want to use former president, fine, but you can use that term. It's a sign of respect. It's a sign of understanding. But it may be also Luke's way of just kind of saying, you know what, the real power in all this was always Annas. In fact, in the trials of Jesus, when, when they were kind of messing with Jesus and he came before everybody, they took him to the house of Annas. And at one point, some of you may remember that, before he went to the Romans. I mean, this guy was the godfather. That's the best way to put it. He was, he was dirty, he was corrupt, he was evil, he was godless, and he was a high priest on top of all that. I mean, this, this was him. So him, Caiaphas, they mentioned John and Alexander, there's speculation who they can be. We don't know. Evidently, Luke's readers may have known. And it says they put him in the center of the group. And then they began to inquire. And, and the idea is they kept asking and asking. By what power or in what name have you done this? Now, the word power in the Greek is, there's different words for power. One is the word authority, akousia, akousia. 
oftentimes she uses authority or power, and another is dunamis. And this is really the word dunamis. It means raw power. It means, it means not so much authority, although combined with the idea of name, it becomes authority. But it's basically this. What ability, what right do you have to do what you're doing? And in whose name? In other words, who sent you? And when you take those two concepts of power and name, they're basically saying, who gave you the authority? Who gave you the right? Who gave you the authenticity to preach at the temple? Because we didn't do it. It wasn't us. Back in um, 2022, in those first four months when I was preaching through the Gospel of Mark, one of the things I constantly hammered and hit home over and over was that Jesus struggled with the religious leaders, primarily the Pharisees, was about authority. Who had the authority to speak for God? Remember me teaching you all that? You'll say, oh yeah, Dave, we remember all that. I memorized all those sermons, got my notes written down and everything. Who had the authority to speak for God? And in their unbelievable arrogance, religious leaders said, we're the only ones who have the authority to speak for God. I, I find that amazing. As a, as a pastor, I wonder, who has the authority to speak from God? Well, the Holy Spirit and whoever he touches. I remember um, early in my ministry, there were these battles going on in Southern Baptist life about who was the spiritual authority of the church. Was it the pastor or was it the people? And by people, I mean deacons. <laughs> That's really what it boiled down to, was the pastor or the deacons. I can guarantee from the scripture, it's never the deacons. At no point in the New Testament does it ever say the deacons have any authority to do anything but to assist the pastor. But even then, I would say, really, if your battle is about spiritual authority, who runs the church, you've already lost that battle. Because the authority is always the Holy Spirit. It's always the Spirit of God moving and leading. And you seek it. People teach. We have lots of people who teach. People preach. People share. You know, there's all done with a sense of authority. So when they ask, who gave you the authority? Peter's going to give them an amazing answer. Peter, it says was filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, he's, I mean, so he's got the Spirit. This does not mean he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit. But when I preached back in the summer about when the Holy Spirit came, remember I said this, we have all the Holy Spirit we're ever going to have. But how the Spirit uses us can be different. And so to be filled with the Spirit means to be utilized by the Spirit. The Spirit was using him. And he said, rulers and elders of the people, I find it interesting. He says, you are the rulers and elders of the people. You are not the rulers and elders from God. At no point does he give them any authority. He says this, if. In the Greek, it's the word ifen, because Peter was southern. No, I'm kidding. Ifen, we're on trial today. If we're on trial today. Some of you got that. It's good. Because I, I just made that up. If we're on trial today for a benefit, get this, a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, how this man has been made whole. So Peter's like saying, so let me get this straight. I just want to know this. We're appearing before you because there was a guy who was born lame. He was crippled all his life. He's 40 years old. And 
he now can walk. So we're, we're on trial today because we let a guy who couldn't walk, walk. Something, by the way, you have never done. Then let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel who you theoretically rule over. And you want to know what name? He says, by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. In other words, by Jesus of Nazareth. So notice he says, Jesus the person. Christ, the Messiah, from the area of Nazareth. Just so we understand, because there were lots of people who claimed they could be a Christ and Messiah. That was common. He said, just to be clarified. But to clarify it even more, let me explain this to you. He's the one, in case you forgot, you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. And once again, Peter does what Peter does. You killed him. God raised him. Sometimes he said, your sins crucified him, or your sins killed him, or your sins put him on the cross. He is constantly reminding humanity, us, that Jesus died because of something about us. But he always reminds them God raised him from the dead. It's always God raised him. Not just he rose, but God raised him, God raised him, God raised him. The, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus is what we call the cross event. Whenever I really talk about the cross, I'll say about the cross, I, I'm, all of it goes together. It's, it's not just, it's not so much two different events, it's one event with two components, two movements. The movement of the crucifixion and the movement of the resurrection. So he's going he's gonna to lay this out there in plain sight. You ask me the name, the authority, the authority is on Jesus of Nazareth. You crucified him, God raised him from the dead, and whatever Pharisees would be there, that would strike a note with them because they would say, well, he's not in that tomb. And even though we say the disciples stole the body, we know they didn't. And a few of us got wind of the fact that people saw him alive. That would strike a note with those guys. It would connect with them. The resurrection of Jesus always puts people in an awkward place if they're not a follower of Jesus. What do you do with the resurrection of Jesus? What do you do? I mean, for all, you know, all the people you know and you love and you care about and you're sharing Jesus with them, at some point you got to share the resurrection. You got to. Nothing else is going to save them. You can teach them to love one another and you can teach them, you know, all the other things that are important that are good. I get it. Some point it boils down to the resurrection. And resurrection makes people uncomfortable. If there was no resurrection in Christianity, the world would have no problem with Christianity. And Christianity would be powerless, useless. But the problem people have with Jesus is resurrection. And all that it implies and points to and signifies. And at some point, that's the message you get across. That Jesus has been raised back to life. And so whenever people really try to discredit or disclaim Christianity, almost always it's going to come to that. I spent a lot of time over the years I've been here preaching about the resurrection and the appearances and the credibility and the evidence and why you should trust it and the foolishness of all the... I mean, I deal, I've dealt with so many times with the arguments against the resurrection and pointed out to you how they are 
illogical. They're not fact-based. And I deal with this with people all the time. I have people, you know, call me on the phone. I have people come visit me. I have people, you know, whatever, try to talk to me about things. And I'm, and I'm always trying to point out, do you understand that what you're saying is not logical and makes no sense? And here's why. And then when all is said and done, the only explanation is the resurrection. It's that important. So he preaches that. He teaches that. He gets them to there. He's not through. He says, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. In other words, he's healthy. The word for health, the kind of word of hygiene, he's, he's good. Why is he able to walk? Because of Jesus and the resurrection and the na- his name. The same name that we have the authority in is the name that healed him. It's not the name, but it's the person behind it. You always understand when we say the name, we're talking about the person behind it. It's not the magic of the name. So then he quotes Psalms 118.22. He says, He is the stone which, has, which was rejected by you, the builders, which just became the chief cornerstone. He says, you rejected Jesus. He's the stone. Rejected by the builders. Then he adds the word, you are the builders. But he is the cornerstone, the chief. He is, everything is built on him. Having quoted that psalm, he then gives this amazing statement. For salvation, he says, is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven, heaven given to men by which you must be saved. And in that verse, he lays out what is really the entire purpose, program, mission, objection of objective of the Christian movement of our Christian lives and of the church. He says there is this thing called salvation. The word for salvation is a word which speaks of one being rescued in a desperate condition. I've said this almost any time the word salvation comes up in a sermon, I tell you this. It speaks of someone who was shipwrecked, who was sick, whatever, and there's nothing they can do to save themselves. There's nothing they can do to rescue themselves. There's nothing they can do to make themselves whole. Someone must help them. And he says that salvation, and he links it to a spiritual sense, which is normal in the New Testament and normal even from the Jewish faith. Salvation, which we all need because of our sin, is found in no one else but this Jesus whom you crucified, God raised him from the dead. You crucified him, God raised him from the dead. Salvation is simply found in no one else. They're the ones who ask, by what name do you do this? Because the name represented the person, the authority. So he says this. For there is no other name, there is no other authority under heaven, which means under the authority of heaven, and heaven was from the Father. So they're saying there's no other authority from the Father given to all of us by which means we are imperatively or commanded or have to be saved. And with this statement, He doesn't just give them by what authority he did this. He gives them the necessity of him doing this. And this statement, this concept, is the driving force behind the apostolic movement and the apostolic message that impacted the church. When Paul comes along and gets saved, it's the same mentality 
It is that there is only one way of salvation. That is God's way. God's way is Jesus. And it drives these guys to risk their life and to die in every case but John, these apostles, for this cause. It would send Peter into, we'll see later, the home of a man named Cornelius and risk the wrath of the Jewish and even the Jewish believers. It would cause Paul, who would be converted and turned around, to go to the Gentiles and be rejected by his own people, to, as he says, be beaten, be tortured, be shunned, be put in prison. All these things happen to him time after time after time. Why would he do it? Because the only way people must be saved is because of Jesus. And we need to understand that. That all the people we see in our culture and all the garbage that's in our culture, and I get it, and that people get so frustrated. Listen to me carefully. Because some of you are not going to like what I'm about to say. But you understand that what I'm saying comes from this passage. People don't need the Ten Commandments. And they don't need to get prayer back into whatever institution you think it needs. And they don't need to go back and do things in an Old Testament way. The only thing that will change people, the only one that will change people is Jesus. And above all else, what they need is Jesus. Now, praying for him, like, I, I, oh, it's great. I get all that. I'm not saying don't do that. But too many people simply think if you flip the switch, and you just start doing these ritual things in the name of Jesus, it'll be okay. That is a pagan concept that if I do certain spiritual things, God is obligated to act based on what I have done. It's pretty odd to hear a Baptist preacher say that that stuff is a pagan concept. You know, prayer is a pagan concept. No. Praying thinks that it obligates God to do something. It's a pagan concept. Praying to change your heart. You know why I pray for lost people? Because I want to be saved. Because like, I want God to use me to help them somehow. Because this person's lost God. I want them to come to faith. So what do I got to do? There are people in my life that I pray for. I say, God, you know, I don't know if I'll ever see them, but if I can see them, if I get a chance, if this, if this, this happens, God, you've got to get me ready because I've got to share Jesus. <laughs> you can pray all you want, and if Jesus never enters the equation, if they never hear the resurrection, how are they going to be saved? How the, we bring the Ten Commandments back. Well, how's that going to save anybody? No person has ever lived on the face of this earth has been saved by following the Ten Commandments, ever. Ever. All it does is condemn them. I'm not saying it's not good that we shouldn't do those things. Yeah. Yeah, we, we should, you know, don't have idols, you know. Don't kill anybody. Don't cheat on your loved spouse. All that. Don't steal anything, you know. Honor your, all that. Yes, do all that. Because you're a believer, you should do all that. Because you're a believer, you should do all that because you are a believer. Why are you asking non-believers to do things 
that won't help them. So when I came here in March and preached in 2015, this is the text I used to came give a call. What I told you, and I've said this many times, said a couple of weeks ago, is this is, the, this is the concept that drives ministry for me. That everything that I will put in practice and try and will do is based on this one understanding. That people need Jesus. They need the resurrected Jesus. They need to hear the message and they need to believe or there is zero chance. I'm preaching Sunday on heaven and hell. Without this message, people go to hell. We need to understand that. And it's simplistic and it doesn't sound good. And, you know, if you go over to, you know, across the Denny's, if this is over and have coffee and start telling this to the waitress and the cook, they'll probably get mad at you. But that's the truth. And you got to figure out how in your life you follow this example. It started when they healed a guy who'd been crippled all his life in the name of Jesus. And it ended standing before the very men who put Jesus to death. And Peter saying, the guy you put to death, God brought back to life. He's the reason this guy is healed. And he is the only hope for salvation anyone has. And you either believe it or you don't. And if you believe it, you either live that way or you don't. There's nothing in between. So that's all I got. We'll see all of it later.